0: Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy.
1: Friends, we're going to continue worship with reading from the book of our Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you... Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. The word of the
0: Lord. Amen. So, our second scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians 11. 23 to 32. Are they ministers of Christ? I am talking like a madman. This is Paul, by the way. (laughs) I'm a better one, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings, and often near death. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked, for a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from dentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked, and besides other things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, blessed be he forever, knows that I do not lie. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me. It's a strange ending. And (laughs) the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as you all know, we're doing our sermon series, Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. Each week we're looking at the history of the early church, the documents we find in the New Testament, and we are asking the question, what does the church in the first century have to say, say, what does it have to say to us about being the church in the 21st century? And we are down to the last two sermons in the first part of this series. We have almost made it through 40 years of history of the early church. And we are entering in with this last two sermons. We're talking about what happens to the church in the tumultuous period in the 60s. Not the 1960s, but the 60s of the first century. And so now we get to a point where we can actually talk about, for the first time, some real persecutions that happen Two people in the church for which we have some evidence outside of the New Testament. But before we can dig down into all of those persecutions and what happened, I need to give you some background. I need to tell you a story about what led up to that. Because, of course, none of this happens in a vacuum now, does it? And, of course, the person we need to talk about is Paul. Because Paul's always the center of everything in the first 40 years of the church. So, you... Have Paul, remember I told you in the middle 50s, his churches start to explode with all of these Gentiles who are coming into his church. But the problem that you run into is that Paul has not been without difficulty in his ministry. And we read something that he said, here this, that he said this morning, which is very important. And 2 Corinthians, just so you know, this is a compilation document, meaning that this is a compilation of two or three or more letters that he wrote that Christians eventually just smashed together into a single letter. So this is taken from one segment of a letter that he wrote and that was put into one. So let's take a look at this. I've had far more imprisonments with countless floggings and often near death. Five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Now this is no joke. Because the fact is, he is trying to really get a rise out of people here. He's trying to be provocative. But if he's being serious about this and he's not lying and he is telling us even half the truth of what happened to him, then this guy would have been mutilated. Mutilated. I want to take you through each of these things that he's talking about. We're going to start with the 40 Lashes of Mites one. Can I have a volunteer? Anybody who's willing to come up and stand up in front of the crowd? (laughs) No? Nobody? Nobody? All right. So, the 40 lashes minus one. This whip from Party City is not quite, not quite what they would have used. But it's close. All right, 40 lashes minus one. The concept behind it is that they believe that if they gave you 40 lashes, you would be killed. So, the idea is they would give you one less to bring you to the point of death. So what would happen is, you'd have the person who was going to be hurt by this 40 lashes. Let's just say this person is standing down here. And what they would do is they would remove their shirt and the administrator would then take the whip and lash the person on the chest 13 times. And then the person would then have to bend over and they would lash them on the back another 26 times. And this entire thing would be happening with the recitation of scripture. You'd get whipped, and you'd have to recite a scripture. Whip, recite a scripture. Now, every time this would happen, it would draw blood, and it would leave scars. And he said that this happened to him how many times? Five times. So you have to imagine that When this would happen to him, after the first time it occurred, each time it happens, it's actually opening up these old wounds and the scar tissue is getting that much thicker every single time it happens. And since most of these lashes would have been levied upon his back, after a while, you imagine after that many lashings, that the scar tissue is so strong and so thick that he probably had to walk bent over because he wouldn't have been able to stand up straight. Now, that's just the 40 lashes minus one. This brings us to the beating with rods. Now, rods, we think of metal rods, at least I do. But really, a rod is simply a tree branch or a reed. Now, depending on the thickness of this branch that they use, it could do anything from causing severe bruising to breaking the skin open. Because, as you can see, there are little... They would break these off. And they would hit you with those. So that could break open the skin. It could cause massive internal bleeding. And it could actually break your bones. So it just depends on how hard the administrator wants to hit you with the rod. But the most serious of all these things that he received was a stoning. Which is intended to kill you. Now... A stoning is different in Judaism than it is in Islam. So in Islam, if you're familiar with that type of stoning, what they do is they bury you up to your head, so only your head is showing out of the ground, and then they pelt you with rocks in your cranium until you pass away. But a Jewish stoning is different. When you were convicted of something that they wanted to kill you for, they would walk you to the top of a two-story building, and the two witnesses who had testified against you would push you off of this two-story building. And then... These two people, they would pick up a stone like this and they would drop it on you two stories up onto your body. And if that didn't do the job, and this is actually pretty heavy. Got to give it to Brian Larson for, uh, we'll use this in our class on Saturday mornings from now on, lugging that thing around. (laughs) When that hits you, if that doesn't finish off the job, then people are supposed to take up rocks and finish off the job with little rocks that are in the area. Now, he says that he survived this. Assuming he's not lying, the only way that this would have happened is if they pushed him off the building, he falls to the ground, they drop this rock on him, and they assume that he's dead, and they just leave him there. And then, a few hours or a few days later, he wakes up and he's able to get away. Now, you have to imagine, this guy would have been messed up right? I mean, like he would have scar tissue all over his chest and back. He would have had bones that were broken that had probably reset improperly. And he would have walked hunched over probably with a limp. I mean, this guy looked like a freak. And yet he's walking around and this is the guy who's out there preaching Jesus to everybody, right? He's the one who's out there and he's talking about Jesus and bringing them into the church. It's it's probably a good thing he was going to do that because he wasn't going to win any beauty contests, that's for sure. Now, looking at all of this that we're just, we just walked through, right, ask yourself a question. Why is it that people got so upset at this man that they were willing to whip, beat, and kill him that they wanted to do that what made them so angry because we like to think right oh it was just the gospel that made them so angry but that's not necessarily the case if you've ever read paul's letters you know that tact is not exactly his greatest virtue paul had a knack for being able to make people upset he liked to push people's buttons he liked to rile them up i don't know if you know anybody like that (laughs) <laughs> but unlike me, <laughs> Paul didn't know when to shut his mouth. Like he, he would push it beyond the boundary. And some scholars have suggested that one of the reasons why he ended up receiving so much punishment is because he just couldn't stop provoking the authorities. You see, what's interesting about Paul is that he's a student of Greek philosophy. And in Greek philosophy, you learn how to argue, right? And so what happens is he treats Christianity like a philosophy. He wants to argue it out with people all the time. You can see it in his letters. He does it all the time where he's arguing it out. And so he probably wouldn't have been subject to so much punishment if he hadn't angered so many people with his rhetoric. And what I'm trying to tell you is that he's invited the pain and suffering that he endured. He wanted it. Because if you look at the situations that he was in, where he describes them in his letters, most people could have walked away from that without harm. But Paul, he would just provoke and antagonize to the point where he would say, look, I'm right, you're wrong, so go ahead and take your best shot. My theory as to why he did this, and this is just my theory, so you take it for what it's worth, but my theory is that he carried a lot of guilt with him about how he had treated Christians earlier in his life. How he'd hurt them, how he'd imprisoned them, those types of things. And I think that in some ways, he felt he kind of deserved to be punished for the things that he did. And the reason I believe this, the reason I have this theory, is because I see it happen all the time with people. All the time. Where people have done something wrong, they carry these heavy burdens with them, and they feel like they deserve to be punished for the things that they've done. How many people do you know in your life, when things seem to be going well for them, they're on the right track, and then all of a sudden, they sabotage themselves? They make a mistake, right? And it just all comes off the rails. I see it all the time with drug addicts, all the time, right? They're good to go, they're in rehab, they're doing well, and then they trip up, right? I've seen it with people who cheat on their spouses, people who beat their spouses, They go through these periods where they're very good, right? They treat their spouse well, and then all of a sudden, fall off. And they do this thing that's so bad. I see it with people who go to prison. Criminals, right? They come out of prison, and they end up in this situation where they're like, okay, I'm going to do right. I'm going to do the right thing. They're on the right track, and then stress builds up, and they re-offend. The reason I think this happens to people is because deep down inside, I think people like this they have trouble believing that they're good on the inside. They have trouble believing that they deserve good things. And so they create this chaos in their lives, right? Where they go out, and if you're a drug addict, like the whole idea is is that I'm going to hurt myself and cause chaos within my own life, or I'm going to cause chaos with others because I can't stand the idea that I'm a good person and I deserve good things. And I really feel like Paul fits this description to a T. And to prove this to you, you just have to look at what Judy read to you in the book of Romans. So just take a look at this real quick. What he's saying right here in this scripture passage is that all members of the government, all government authorities have been placed where they are by God. Now this is, was not an uncommon sentiment in the first century. In fact, even to this day, have you heard people who talk about the idea that people have been placed where they are in government by God? Still persists. Still persists. Now... I think this also serves a secondary purpose for Paul, this belief. Because subconsciously, when he goes before these authorities, if he provokes them and they hurt them, it's as if God is hurting them, right? Because remember, they've been placed there by God and so if he provokes them and they punish him, it's as if God is punishing Paul. Now my theory could be wrong, could be totally inaccurate, but that's Kind of what I see happening when I, kind of, when I pick this apart. Now, regardless of his ulterior motives for coming in front of the authorities, the fact is what we do know is that if it hadn't been for Paul talking so much to the government authorities that the Roman Empire would not have really known about Christianity. They wouldn't have even realized that the church existed. But Paul spoke to so many people at so many different times within the government that eventually the Christian church became a known entity to the people within the Roman Empire. And this was not unintentional on his part, by the way. He did this intentionally, because it goes back to his idea that all people in government, that they are an extension of God. Because think about it for a second. If he can get in front of a high-ranking government official, and he can talk to them about Jesus, and he can convert them to Jesus' cause... All of a sudden, Jesus' movement has been elevated to an entirely different platform, hasn't it? Entirely different platform. Because now, if this high-ranking government official, if this person believes, and they talk to people about it, think about how much more influence they're going to have on people than somebody just like Paul. So he's trying to get the message out there to these people to talk to them about it. But it has some unintended consequences that he was not anticipating. You see, the Roman emperor... Between 54 and 68 AD is Emperor Nero. And in 64, Nero, he targets believers of Jesus' movement and goes after them and ends up crucifying them. And we have two historians who actually make reference to this outside of the Bible. So, one is named Suetonius, the other is named Tacitus. Let's take a look at both of these guys and see what they have to say. So, this is Suetonius. This is from his, literally, he wrote a volume on Nero. Punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Okay, now what that means, that last little part, it just means they didn't follow the gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon. And it means they were very zealous for their faith. But what's interesting is he doesn't tell us anything about why it happens. He just says, it happened. We don't have any kind of context for it. Just that he went after them. The second person, Tacitus, he does give a reason. And his reason is very interesting. So in 64, there was a fire in Rome. And this fire was devastating. Killed thousands of people, burned down all kinds of different places in Rome. Rome had 14 districts at that time. Three were completely demolished by fire. They didn't even exist any longer. And four, only four, escaped any kind of damage. Even Nero's own palace was damaged by it. And so there was a rumor going around that Nero had started the fire himself. Now, this rumor has never been substantiated, but it was a rumor at the time. And so Tacitus says, in order to squash the rumor, this is what he says, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Now, some historians, they have questioned this particular Version of events because the problem that you run into is that Tacitus he's writing at a time when Christianity and Judaism had split apart. But in 64, as we've been talking about, had they split? No, they're still one and the same, right? But what I think after looking at this is that regardless of whether it happened because of the fire, because who knows if it did, it's very clear to me that Nero, for some reason, zeroes in on these Jesus believers and decides that he's going to crucify them. Nero was crazy. I mean, he was a crazy guy. So I don't think it would have taken much for him just to say, hey, I'm gonna do this. It doesn't, You don't need a fire for it. But regardless, he zeroes in on them and he does this. And I can't help but wonder if Paul had not been quite so zealous for getting in front of governmental authorities and talking about Jesus if it would have happened. I think that more than likely, Nero knew about Jesus' movement because of Paul. And yet, something really amazing happens as a result of this, which is that following these persecutions, the Christian movement grows, which you would think it would be the opposite, right? Isn't that a little bit counterintuitive? Like, if you see somebody getting beat up and killed, what would you do? I would usually walk the other way, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd say, hey, that's good for you guys. I'm going to go do something else. But that's not... That's not how they felt about it. In fact, people saw that, and they were outsiders to the movement, and they said, I think I want to be part of that. And the question is, why? Why did they do that? And I think you all already know the answer to this, because it's just what we do as human beings, right? When you see someone who is so dedicated to a cause that they're willing to sacrifice themselves for it, is that inspirational to you? Absolutely it is. We watch movies about it. Today, we're, we're talking about veterans who have gone out and risked their lives, right? I mean, that's, that's what we're celebrating this weekend, is, is what these people have done. And, we, and it's amazing when people are willing to do that. And so, I think what happens is, people see this and they say, wow, there must be more to this than meets the eye. There must be something really amazing behind this belief. And so they start joining. Now, that's the first century. Here we are, 2,000 years later, 21st century, and we live in a land of religious freedom, right? Where you can believe anything you want to believe, ostensibly, and you're not going to get punished for it, although these candles back here may, uh, may point to otherwise. And we do know that in our country, if you've been Jewish or you're Muslim, that you can definitely face some discrimination. But I think, generally speaking, compared to the rest of the world, we have it pretty well, going pretty well when it comes to religion. You can believe whatever you want to believe. And unlike the first century Christians where you could be killed for just being associated with Jesus, it's a different situation. So the question that I want to pose this morning to you is how do we help outsiders to understand that there's more to this faith than meets the eye? How do we help them to know that there's something amazing behind our faith? How do we do that? Because we're not going to see people out there who are being crucified on the street, are we? That's not going to be the same. So the thing that I've heard most often people say when they say, well, how do you really promote the faith? I, I hear people say all the time, well, show them who you are by your example. Have you heard that? All the time, right? Which theoretically I agree with. But there's a little bit more to it than that, isn't there? Because the fact is, you can say, oh, I'm a Christian and I live a Christian life. But the truth is, Jesus' love is kind of rare. That love is not a love that you see very often. In fact, if you see it, you're going to sit up and take notice of it. Trust me on that. Because Jesus, he calls us to sacrifice, not just for ourselves, not just for our family, not just for our friends, but for people we don't even know. And most people, they're willing to do yourself, your family, your friends. That's everybody. Everybody. I don't know a lot of people who are willing to sacrifice huge amounts for people they don't even know. Jesus calls us that when you see injustice in the world, that you need to stand up to that injustice. You need to tell them. You need to sit there and go up to the person who's doing the persecuting and saying, what you are doing is wrong. And I'm not going to stand for that any longer. And you need to stop because you are hurting these people. And I won't let you continue. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? How many people in here... Have seen something like that, nothing to do with you, and you walk up and you say, This has to stop. It's rare. It's rare, isn't it? The fact is, we all know that we're supposed to stand up in the face of persecution. We all know that we're supposed to be examples of God's love, but it's really hard to have the courage to do so, isn't it? It's really hard to stand up in the face of those types of things and say, You know what? I'm going to be strong, and I'm going to stick up for you, and I'm going to be there for those who can't speak for themselves. So I want to end this morning by telling you a story. This is a story uh, of someone who is willing to stand up and speak out for people who didn't have a voice. And she's not here this morning. My son is feeling sick today, but I'm actually going to tell you a story about my wife, which is rare, because I hardly ever do that. Uh, Given the fact that I try to respect her privacy, Uh, And I don't know if you've ever seen these pastors who all they do is talk about their families all the time. You know, like TC, he always talks about his dad or whatever. (laughs) No, I tried not to talk about her because, you know, she doesn't, that's not, this isn't her thing. But I asked her permission if I could tell this story because I think it's a really great story. It's inspirational to me personally and it, I'm very proud of her for what she did. So in order to understand this story, you need to know that my son Elijah, he attends Juliet Lowe Elementary School. 56% of Juliet Lowe is comprised of Hispanic students, many of whom live at or below the poverty line. Now in recent years, because the composition of the school has trended towards native Spanish speakers, the school as a whole has scored very low on the park tests. Now, if you don't know what the PARC test is, that is part of the Common Core curriculum that is administered to make sure everybody's meeting the standards, and they've scored very low on this test. Now, this test is first administered in third grade. That's the first time that you get it. And, of course, it's given in English. And most of these kids, they're not going to be proficient enough. We know that it takes about five to eight years if you're learning a language other than your native language, to get to the point where you can take an academic test. That's how long it takes for you to learn it well enough that you can score well on that test. So these kids in sixth, seventh, eighth grade do way better than they're gonna be doing in third grade. But in Surrey Ridge, which is the community that surrounds Juliet Lowe, we've had a number of people who have been complaining about the fact that these park scores are lowering their home values. There are a number of families in Juliet Lowe who are in the area around Juliet Lowe who won't send their kids to Juliet Lowe because they claim inaccurately that all of the funding that it goes towards these Spanish-speaking students. On our neighborhood website, there are people who post extraordinarily racist things about our dual-language program at our school, something that Elijah is a part of. So it seems that there is this kind of burgeoning attitude in our neighborhood where people are not only speaking negatively about these Spanish-speaking students, but they also are saying that these students should not be there. And so when the school board was debating over keeping this dual-language program, my wife, she wanted to go in and she wanted to give voice to those who don't have a voice. So she went before the school board, she stood up, and she said that our son Elijah, he loves the dual language program that he's in. Half the kids are native Spanish speakers, half the kids are native English speakers. And they're both learning from each other quite a bit. And she explained that we chose this school specifically because of its mission to serve a diverse socioeconomic student population. And so she said, you know, these Spanish speaking students, they're not bringing Juliet low down, they are raising it up. And what's amazing is that when she did this, there were so many families, so many people who she didn't even know, who came up to her and said to her, you know, thank you. I promised myself I wouldn't cry. (laughs) Thank you for what you did for us. Because we were afraid nobody else would. I'm proud of her for what she did, because she didn't have to do those things. She could have said, not my fight, not my problem. But she stuck out, she stuck her neck out for these people who she doesn't even know, frankly. And so in that moment, when I looked at her, I thought to myself, you know, that's amazing. That made me sit up and take notice. That made me sit there and say, you know what, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. I want to be a person who loves so deeply that I'm willing to sacrifice myself, not just for my family, not just for my friends, not just for people I know and I'm close to, but for people I don't even know. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you might experience that kind of love in your life, that people would step up for you in that way, but also that you would step up for those that you don't even know. May you know a love that is so deep that it has no end because that's the kind of love that truly does change the world and that's the kind of love where people will sit up and take notice and say, that's something I want to be a part of. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstprezah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.